If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What are the best ways to gain an insight into the history of ancient China? Well, according to Professor Jessica Rawson, one way we can come face to face with Chinese civilization of centuries past is through its tombs. And that's the approach she's taken in her new book, which explores 3,000 years of Chinese history through a dozen burials spread across time and space. Jessica was joined in conversation by Rob Attar. Your book explores the history of ancient China through a number of tombs from across the country. Why do you feel that this is a particularly useful route into this history? Well, in all countries... Wherever you are in the world, settlements fall apart. And we're going right back 5,000 years. And settlements in Britain of 5,000 years ago have long disappeared. So if you were looking in the UK, you would expect to look in a tomb, in fact. But it wouldn't be a tomb in recorded history. In China, they started having very large tombs around 2000 BC. And then they built even bigger ones when we get to... 1200 BC, and they are really quite enormous. So the first question is, why look at tombs? Well, look at them because they are large and complete. And given that there are so many in China, at least some of them can be found unlooted. And so they go right on 
to the elite tombs of the emperors in the 18th and 19th century AD. And there's nowhere else in the world where you'd find this sequence of tombs with full-scale objects in them. And particularly in the early period of my book, this is a time when people buried whole, if you like, household stuff and everyday things, but also highly valuable ritual things. So that it's a very rich area to examine, and there is honestly nowhere else to find them. The only sort of equivalent would be an Egyptian pyramid. But in an Egyptian pyramid, very many of them contain paintings or models. And though that happens later in China, in the early time that I'm talking about, you get actual bronzes, jades, of course, many jades, you get chariots and horses, you get the ritual vessels, and you get even furniture in those areas where the furniture hasn't decayed, because often it's of wood that is lacquered. So it's an extraordinary rich history, which makes us look at the Chinese world rather differently than what we see in texts. But I think possibly the religious belief is really important to understand. And China has a quite remarkable religious belief in the power of their ancestors. So they continue to offer food weekly or daily or monthly, even down probably to now, believing that their ancestors can help them in their lives and they must show due respect, follow the rituals properly and provide them with what is in fact a mansion or palace or house for the afterlife. So the tombs I'm talking about are rather early. They cover nearly 5,000 years and they are equipped for the elite with very fine materials, as I said, furniture as well as objects for daily life and for ritual life and chariots and warfare, so that we get a picture, we get a full picture of how the Chinese looked on their lives at the time. And that's what you can see in museums. If you go to the British Museum or you go to a museum in China, you will see things that come from tombs. They almost never come from settlements. And when we're talking about China at this point, you know, going back, say, to 3000 BC, what do we actually mean? Because the China that we understand it today as a unified country wasn't unified at this point, was it? We're looking at a much smaller area. We're looking above all at the Yellow River Basin. But we should remember there are two enormous rivers, the Yangtze River in the south and the Yellow River in the north. And at 3000 BC, there are lots of different cities and settlements and towns. We don't know who they were. There's no writing for this time. But the buildings that they made, the walls and their settlements are as important and as prosperous as those in Mesopotamia that we're more familiar with or Egypt. So that we're looking at lots of different areas with different groups of power. What happens slowly is that the central Yellow River, not the western, but the central and the large river flowing over the plains to the east, becomes the centre of the early dynasties, and they're called the Shang and the Zhou. The Zhou dynasty lasts down to nearly the conquest by the Qin, but it breaks up into separate states. So we're talking about a centre of power on the Yellow River, which extends northwards quite a long way, and is attempting to move south, and does indeed move south. 
And the really powerful tool is their language. So when we talk about China, we're really talking about the areas in which Chinese characters were used. And the Chinese characters are not connected to pronunciation. So whereas we use an one alphabet across Europe, it absolutely represents the sound of French or German or English. The characters reproduce words, certainly, and people would have given them sounds, but the sounds may have been different in different parts of China, as they are today. So people in Shanghai and Beijing don't understand each other very well, but they use the same characters. So the unifying happens in part with the language, as the people using the language, using the written language, are drawn in, if you like. The nucleus is still on the Yellow River, but people in the south are being drawn in over a long period. You've already mentioned civilizations such as Egypt, Mesopotamia, which were also existing at a similar sort of time. What would you see as some of the main similarities and differences between China and some of these other civilizations in Europe, North Africa and Asia? The most important thing that people really never notice is that there is this huge Tibetan plateau between China and Iran and to a large extent between China and India. So crossing even from India into China in the south is very difficult. So in many ways, China's civilization is genuinely different from Mesopotamia and Egypt. Obviously, everybody has to look for food, both on the Chinese side and on Mesopotamian side, they move into growing grains. So in China, it's rice and millet. In the West, it's wheat and barley. But the climate is quite different too. In the West, we are familiar, as we are often today, with the Atlantic rain. It comes in the winter primarily and spasmodically during the summer, but we don't have huge, wet, humid summers, whereas China is in the Pacific monsoon, which comes flashing in from the south over the whole of China going north. And as it fails, that becomes arid, and then that's where the steppe begins. So they have summer rain, and they're growing, say, rice with paddy fields, which are wet, so that the daily life is quite different. And there's also many fewer herded animals. There are no cows and sheep or horses domesticated in China. So they all actually cross through the steppe to northern China, where they're kept mainly on the hills, not integrated into mixed farming, as we would be more familiar with. Here, some people would have both grain cropping and sheep. You know, that's not typical in China at all. In ancient times, I think one major difference is in Egypt or Mesopotamia, there are these images of gods of different kinds, different belief systems, and they build communities around those gods. And that later develops into Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. But in the Chinese side, though there are spirits and belief in spirits and ghosts, they don't develop communities centered singly on a deity. They're really developing family clan systems based on their ancestors. And this social difference is immensely important to some extent, even down to today. And I think if I was to single out the most important feature in China, apart from looking at their landscape and their climate, I would look at this emphasis on the family, on the ancestors, and on the rituals and burial of the dead. I mean, these are immensely important. And 
In consequence, the tombs, for example, are much richer in China, where you have Islamic belief or in Christian belief, you don't have deep, large burials at all. You have burials and you have monuments. And of course, the a major difference is China's northern areas are covered in a sandy dust called loess, and that covers at sometimes several hundred meters the rocks below. So there is no stone architecture of any elite type, no palaces, no temples, no walls made of stone. And if you were to visit China, and then you visit especially Egypt, you would see the extraordinary stone temples, the columns, the figures of deities, the figures of emperors. In China, there's none of that. And so they've, they're building in this pounded, sandy earth. They make immense platforms, and then they build in wood on top. And people who go to visit the Forbidden City actually see that. They, it looks as if they're made of stone, these platforms, but actually they're faced with stone. They're earthen platforms and very, very elaborate, beautifully made wooden buildings on top with tiled roofs. So the Chinese are brilliant at wood and brilliant at ceramics. So their roofs are all beautifully tiled and gleam in the sun. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So was there any contact at all between China and some of the other powers of the ancient world? There's certainly contact, but you need to look at it like that, this. If you think of Tibet as an enormous, it's not just a lump, it's a huge plateau. And because you have to accommodate to altitudes of 5,000 metres, that's extremely high, you can't walk from Turkmenistan or Afghanistan across Tibet because in the early times you would have wanted animals to travel with, and they can't be acclimatized. So people chose two different routes, and the major early route is the steppe route. And as people domesticated these herded animals in Western Asia and in the Western steppe, the horses particularly, they traveled with their animals across this area to China. And this certainly brought metallurgy to China. There was no use of metals at all in China until they reached China across the steppe. First bronze, that is the copper alloys of tin and copper and sometimes lead, and in due course gold. But if you imagine this huge area of sandy loess, which sort of 2,000 kilometres east to west, west to east, and 500 kilometres north-south, you can't find either copper or gold there. You're going to look for it later, further east and further south, where there are mountains. And for a long time, gold anyway was imported from the steppe. So sudden things definitely came across the steppe. I would call the oasis route across Central Asia, where you travel into Kyrgyzstan or Kazakhstan, and then towards further west. Over that route came the Buddhists. They moved out of India and through Nepal and up the Karakorm Highway into Central Asia. And they certainly brought 
a great deal of information. They also brought artistic styles from the Hellenistic world to China. So there is a considerable movement at that time, and that's from uh, at the very earliest, 100 BC. So that is a good route of communication. But a lot of it is proselytizing Buddhists. They're bringing what they're interested in to find new communities. You don't find people bringing Greek science to China. That doesn't arrive until the Jesuits in the 17th and 18th century. So what can get through the what we call the Silk Road, but I think is really a Buddhist and horse road, because China is getting horses that way, um, is not a full-scale Mesopotamian culture or even a Greek culture. Though in the early centuries AD, in 500, 600, 700, there is diplomacy going on across the whole of Eurasia, and Byzantine people come towards China, and some escaping from Islam also move into China for refuge. So there is communication, but the biggest communication happens with the sea. So the sea doesn't really open up till... 1000 AD, when people are building big enough ships, particularly Islamic groups, are traveling through Southeast Asia and round the southern China coast up towards the southern part of Shanghai and so on. So that it takes a long time for communication to build quite fully at even a trade level through the sea. You've already said that we can learn quite a lot about Chinese society and burial practices from the tombs. Can we learn much about the individuals themselves who are buried in them? Yes. The person who is buried in a tomb, and I'm talking about very grand tombs, they're not tombs of kings or of emperors because those are never, almost never excavated, but they're members of the... One of my chapters is about a man who is the leader of the chariots or there's a minor marquis. We certainly learn quite a lot about their various connections. They don't give a biography. In later tombs from, say, 100 BC, you might get a whole inscribed biography. But before that, you don't get a biography, but you would find many aspects of their life. So the man who's a chariot leader has, of course, ritual vessels of the highest quality, shows that he's highly regarded by the people in the court. He must have been very important to the king of the Shang dynasty. But he also has features that show he's connected to the north. He has the tools and the decoration needed for a chariot. That's how we can identify him as a charioteer. He also know his name. His name appears both on the vessels and on some of the chariot pieces and on his weapons. So we know quite a lot about that. And then we can compare him with other people buried in the same area who do or do not have names or similar names or different names. And we can see that he's quite closely connected but living a generation later from a royal consort who's buried very near him. So the royal consort, called Fuha and him, Yachang, are both buried with a lot of chariot equipment. They're not buried in the royal cemetery. And from this we can conclude that they're important for being buried near something else. And what is something else? It's the temples and palaces of the king. So they are in buried there, both because they're 
leaders in warfare and have been successful. Fu Hao, we know, has been successful because there are inscriptions about her on what are called oracle bones. What is implied is both of them are needed in the afterlife to defend the king and his palace against the ghost armies of the future. So the burial of these people, we can see what they must have owned and we can see how they were valued because this man who was the chariot leader must have been very highly valued because what he's buried with is of very high quality and it compares with this royal consort. So he clearly had a high status in the court even though his burial position, he's lying buried with his face downwards, not face upwards, um, shows that he must have been an outsider who perhaps several generations earlier moved into the region to look after horses and to run chariots because the horses can't be easily bred in China. They have to be brought in from the far north towards Mongolia where the conditions are better for breeding horses. China's really too hot, too humid, and lacks certain nutrition in the soil. So we can tell that this man must have been involved with horses, must have been a fighter, he has fantastic weapons, and he also has things like gold, which would not be found in China, and therefore is probably something that his family brought with them. And do we know what would happen to these tombs after someone was buried in them? Would people visit them? Would they be at risk of being looted? Or would they have just been preserved intact and left alone? Some tombs are deliberately looted and some are looted in ancient times. So the royal tombs of the Shang kings buried before 1000 BC, those have all been looted and they were probably looted immediately by their successors who are called the Zhou because we can see that there are enormous pits dug down, straight down in the middle of the tombs. They must have been easily located. They perhaps had small buildings on top of them and it's very important for the succeeding dynasty to do away with the power of the ancestors of the preceding dynasty. So it's a confirmation to us, telling us that the Zhou leaders feared the ancestors of the Shang kings. So they're definitely looted. Quite a lot of trouble is taken to hide royal tombs, and in some areas they were successful probably, because we've never found them. What later happens is they put great mounds on them. That makes it harder to dig in. But sometimes cemeteries have a thousand burials in them, and quite often tomb robbers don't find the best ones. So that there is tomb robbing. Sometimes it's old, sometimes it's modern, but it certainly has left many tombs intact. And so the ones that I describe are certainly of that kind. Now, I'm sure that the ancient Chinese tomb that will be most well-known to our listeners is that of the Chinese first emperor with his terracotta army. I mean, what insights can you give us into them and why they were created? Well, this is an enormous tomb, and the terracotta warriors are only one small part of it. So one has to think of what it actually looks like on the ground. So if you go there and visit the first emperor's tomb, you see an enormous mound. It's 55 metres high, and underneath there is... A a deep pit. No one has excavated it, but they've done what they call coring, digging, a, if you like, a drill into it and taking cores out. And also they've done a form of archaeological radar, if you like, and they've done this remote sensing. So they know that the main tomb is around 100 feet deep. So that's enormous. That's the height of 20 stories of a building. So if you can imagine 
this was built like a palace and we assume inside it are all the beauties and all the treasures of someone who lived in a palace. Above it is another building which is like a sort of terrace another hundred feet into the air and that's inside the mound. So the key part of this whole structure is the actual tomb and it's surrounded by walls as if it's a palace within a walled city. Now the terracotta warriors are at least a mile and a half away and they are there to guard the tomb in the afterlife so that in the afterlife these figures will come alive against ghost armies. The first emperor had killed the armies of six other states. I mean there are a lot of dead warriors out there and this army is afraid of those and it's facing east. So it's not facing the people of the steppe, which they might have feared, they're facing east to the other states. And they're equipped with real weapons. They have actual swords and actual crossbows. And so the crossbow is the most powerful weapon of the time, and each of the warriors with the crossbow has a batch of a hundred arrowheads with arrows. They also have chariots, they have leaders, they have generals. So there are four pits three of them had figures in them, that are guarding this tomb. But actually, there's much more to the site. And what the Chinese are busy excavating at the moment are all the other buildings, underground buildings, that are around the main tomb. And in those are huge numbers of horses, some live horses that were killed, some model horses. There are people who are what are training as members of the army, they're wrestlers. There's armour made of stone and tied together with strings of bronze, which makes armour for real people who are buried in tombs near the first emperor. So probably elite members of the army, generals and majors of the army, are buried near him in tombs and when they need to function again in the afterlife, they're going to be equipped with these huge armors made of limestone. Now, that's not, cannot be intended for life. If you wear armor made of little plaques of stone and you hit it with an iron mace, it will fall apart. So this is for the afterlife. So stone, especially white stone, which is like jade, is seen as highly protective and very valuable. So that's only part of it. There's also a lovely watercourse with birds made of bronze. And you asked a bit about, or thought a bit about, how people made contact from Central Asia or Western Asia. And it's probable that the first emperor had many different advisors, some of whom may have been from Central Asia. And the bronze birds in particular look as if they're made by technologies that are much more typical of Central Asia or Western Asia than of China at that time. So He's a very powerful man, and he has control of all the trade routes, if you like, going west. So he will have known about and had people visit his capital near present day. It's not at Xi'an, it's near present day Xi'an. And he will have had information what was going on further west in what is the Hellenistic remains of Alexander the Great. So... Um, I think we need and hope for more information over time about the contacts of the first emperor, both going east to the other 
states that he conquered and going west. And we have lots of information that he's also moving south. His army is sent south to bring very precious objects and precious materials from the south to be buried in this tomb. Now, we've already talked a fair bit about some of these items that would be needed for the people who are buried in the afterlife. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about what Chinese beliefs were about what would happen to you after you died. Well, the first thing to know is that the afterlife is not much described. As, I mean, there's no Bible, no creed to read. What we have first is engravings on bones, which are for divination, to see if doing a particular war or whether the crops will grow, learn that they are appealing to their ancestors in 1200 BC to find out if the ancestors will intervene and make sure that good crops will grow or that a war will be successful. Sometimes the reading of the bone says it won't be successful and they don't do it. So we know that they saw their ancestors existing in some sort of similar role to life, that there was some sort of court to which the person belonged. And I'm absolutely certain that for the first emperor, he believed by having a big tomb full of magnificent stuff and with attendants with him, buried with him, no doubt women as well as men, that he would have lived a court life in another life, in an afterlife. If you want to read a bit more about it, one has to look to later texts often where you find fragments of discussion. So a man is travelling along to a distant destination, it gets late, and so he stops off and sleeps at an inn. He gets woken up in the night, and get this is written down in a small story, he gets woken up in the night and taken to help join a neighbouring little group of people who are fighting some robbers. So he goes and joins them, he's riding a horse, his neighbours are riding horses, and they fight the robbers off, and he's successful, and he goes back and sleeps the rest of the night. And then he travels on, and he meets his friends, who said, why on earth are you arriving so late? And he said, well, I got stopped off at this village, I slept there, and I helped them with this little robbery and skirmish. And they say, no, there's only a cemetery there. So they go and open a tomb and find that the little models, we're talking about the 8th century AD, the little models have been beheaded and little models of men on horseback have been killed, if you like. So that there's a double existence. The, the tomb exists as a tomb, but the afterlife exists as an afterlife. And at the same time, a person also might be a Buddhist. Believing in the afterlife and the power of the ancestors did not exclude people from following the Buddhist beliefs and the Buddha's style of life. So that one reason we don't find out much about it is that they don't write down a creed. There is only these anecdotes or stories, often written down later, which give us a hint of how a few people encountered the afterlife during their lives, if you like, and they were certain it was there. And I think one important feature is that no family would have shared in the ceremonies for the afterlife and ancestors of another family. So the spirits of the ancestors are only interested in their descendants. Now, in earlier periods, in the 
early centuries AD or late centuries AD, these families would have been very large. They would have been a large clan with separate segments who moved around. Everybody would know each other and married partners would be included. So that we're dealing with very large groups. Today, that isn't the case because of the one-child policy. There's many smaller families. But that gives us the wrong impression of what China was like even 100 years ago. It was a, a society of very large families who lived together, ate together, believed together, and conducted their lives in in relation to each other. So actually, on that point, I realise your book is focused on ancient China, but do a number of these burial practices and traditions carry on into more recent times? Yes, I, I would say certainly into the early part of 20th century, it's very common. And if you go around China today, you'll see areas of farming land where there are little tomb mounds, often perhaps even with flowers on them. And I don't think we should think that it's gone. It may have been very modified, but my experience is to say that the people I know and well enough to ask politely about something will give the impression that family rituals for the dead are continuing. I don't believe that lavish tombs continue. I don't believe the elite of the central powers are buried in this lavish way like the people in the past. But the Ming emperors and the Qing emperors into the late 18th century would have been buried in this way. I don't think their tombs would be as rich as the ones I describe. But the tomb that was excavated in the 17th century showed that the cloth needed to make new clothes, not existing clothes, but cloth needed to be cut to make new clothes, was buried in the tomb. So that the people in the 17th and 18th century certainly thought that life would continue and that the people would require um, the provision for that life and their descendants, the living, would continue to make ritual offerings weekly, as I said, or monthly or or seasonally. But at the same time, society has developed in all sorts of different directions. There are other beliefs, there are all sorts of other aspects we haven't talked about, about a cosmology of the heaven, earth, altars, the sun and the moon, you know. So it's all quite mixed and complicated. And I think one reason we find China a bit enigmatic is because none of this is easily accessed. You have to spend time reading about it, and I hope my book with its different chapters gives some impression of how complex these beliefs were and how rich. I mean, that the, the thing we should always notice, thinking of the terracotta warriors, making several thousand clay warriors is an enormous task. And in the second, third centuries BC, somebody must have had a plan and that in itself is quite remarkable, that someone knew what they wanted to achieve and almost wrote it down. I mean, there is no written evidence, but there must have been a, a plan because the soldiers have come out more or less the same size, all with different dress for different ranks, and someone knew that too. A quite extraordinary detail. So then not only is there a blueprint and there's understanding of how the armour an army and the weapons are made and used. But also, we know from the inscriptions on the figures that they're made in batches by different groups. And I think probably one of China's greatest strengths today and in the past is to organise their population into parallel groups working on enormous projects. So today we have the highest 
speed railways in China. Nowhere else in the world has so many miles of it. Um, They make the enormous numbers of ceramics and export to the Western world in the 17th, 18th century. They have a very, very high skill in execution of craft, if you like, art and craft. And the terracotta warriors are undoubtedly that. No individual one craftsman decided to do one warrior in one way and another one in another. There was definitely a plan, not only for the whole army, but also for each subsection. People, when they go there, are just amazed by the figures. But perhaps they could also and should also think of how amazing this kind of technical expertise and its organisation is. Because that, in fact, is China's power today. It's one of the most effective manufacturing uh, countries in the world. And that's because its population is very skilled. And so in general then, do you think that by studying ancient China we can get useful insights into the China of today? Absolutely. I think if people would only pause and think about the difference between societies like the ones in Western Asia, Islam or Christianity, where the community is dominated by a a particular belief which is shared among people. I mean, true in modern age, the belief is perhaps not as prominent as it was, but we've built up a tradition of this community life and where we know our neighbours and we eat together in each other's houses. And then we have a China which is very heavily family-based. And even today, if they're going to eat across several families, they will eat in a restaurant, not in each other's houses. So their family life is very much confined to the family. And that leads to a very strong seniority model. So the senior members are superior and senior to the children, of course, and no child can replace their father or their grandfather in the generational sequence. And actually, if you read some of the chapters I've written, you will see that that has an impact on the government of the early China. And I think today even, the acceptance of seniority in the family leads to a kind of acceptance of seniority in localities, in regions of China, in the big provinces. The governor of the province is regarded as very important. He has immense power. China is in some ways not as centralised as it looks to us from a distance. What I'd say is in each small region, each larger region, what matters is who is the senior person in that region. And when, as a visitor, I visit China, if I'm taken to meet a group of archaeologists, I immediately can tell who is the senior member in the room. So that the notion of seniority comes from the notion of family seniority. It's not done by rules and regulations at the family level or even the regional level. I think we have to adjust our understanding of what we're looking at and then try to perhaps have discussions about why our societies look at things differently and also why our skills are different. So China has this enormous skill in craft production, very strongly ceramic, um, but they also brilliant at building concrete railway bridges and buildings. We have a much stronger metallic tradition. We have in the West developed the engines and the lathes and so on. So there are are differences, but we ought to try and learn to share each other's differences rather than be completely bothered by them. Of course, both sides have good reason to have problems with the other. But I think if we look at ancient China, we can start to see why China 
which we meet as tourists is like, because if you go to the Forbidden City, you're seeing something that belongs to a long structural tradition that goes right back to the chapters at the very beginning of my book, so that only by looking at those early chapters will we understand China's buildings. That was Professor Jessica Rawson. Life and Afterlife in Ancient China is out now, published by Alan Lane. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.